I'm on race and coronavirus because the pandemic has affected our communities in ways that we have yet to understand, in job loss, in, in uh, infection rates, in the reduction in housing, so many ways that we will not see the implications of it for months to come. Welcome to Race and Coronavirus. I'm Levy Sumagaisai. And I'm Patty Navalta. Our guest today is Maria Lemos, Executive Director of Vision y Compromiso, whose mission is committed to community well-being by supporting promotoras and community health workers. Its vision is stated as a healthy and dignified life. Welcome, Maria. Thank you very much. So I know that one of the pillars of your organization is its promotor model, and many people and organizations and agencies rely on your services, but not many people know that it exists or what you do. So can you tell us how this model was created and and how it works? Well, the person who we call promotor has existed in our communities and in our families for I say since uh, Eve was a grandmother, in that it's always that person who is central in the family, the one who is helping, who is helping their community, who's helping their immediate family, who is the resource for the neighborhood, who takes food, who it exists, that person exists in every community, whether they're Jewish, they're Filipino, they're Mexican, they're African. It is that, that important link. What we've done over the 20 years that we've existed is really just brought those resources together. 20 years ago, we discovered that there were many of us who were doing this in the community, and we wanted to share more information. We wanted to form a network where we would share resources and take take it out to the community, where we would know a little bit of a lot. And then that we would take out and, and bring resources to areas that were hard to reach. Not hard to reach for us, but hard to reach for mainstream organizations. Mm-hmm. And so that idea is what grew into the network of promotoras and community health workers. So, Maria, can you talk a little bit about where the promotoras are? You know, what cities and states and about how many of them there are? Well, in California, our network reaches close to 5,000 promotoras, either as volunteers or affiliated with organizations. And even, I think there's a misconception that promotorazi and community health workers are primarily in the health field, but in our network, they come from all fields, all sectors. They are in resource centers, they're in Girl Scouts, they're in clinics, they're in hospitals, domestic violence uh, agencies. They're across the board because that person who's the link to the community is really important in most social service agencies and most places across California and the United States. In our group, we're primarily a Spanish-speaking group, although we've been training in English-speaking communities also. Wherever you find, in particular, an immigrant community, you're going to find the essence of this person because it hasn't been diluted by the American system. It hasn't been diluted by the association with other, with other agencies. And that person is still true across the United States. The activity is still true across the United States. It's a lot of what keeps us functioning in our areas. So if I go to Kansas, I'll find promotoras. I I was in Arkansas. We've been to Utah, to Idaho. Almost everywhere that I can think of that we've been, you will find that person that we call has the Espiritu Servicio. 
the one who really wants to help their community. They may be more formalized or less formal in their relationship to their community in that they may be volunteers. There are many informal networks across the United States and we're affiliated with, I think, many of them, if not most of them. And we've been trying to support them in building their capacity to organize and to provide better service in their communities. Um, But we're everywhere. I've been to Alaska, you you name it. We are, you know, this essence of, of that person exists everywhere. And just just to follow up on that real quick, what kind of training do promotores receive? Well, the Espirito Servicio, or that spirit of service that, that we initiated our organization with, is not a training. It is something that you're born with. And so to train somebody to have that spirit, to have that willingness to give in their community, I don't know any classes that do that. I don't think that that, that, that's an innate quality. So we have built on that. There are other skills that, that you can offer promotoras, and that's what we do. We started, if you remember the premises, knowing a little bit of a lot. So with that, we started offering a lot of trainings in across sectors, so mental health, reproductive rights, you name it, because they wanted to know as much information as they could to be able to give to the community. But what that did was that built their capacity, their education on different topics, and so now we have promotoras who are really skilled in, in different areas because, in part because of the work that Vision does, but also other agencies that continue to build their knowledge base. Counties and health systems are interested in, in the promotor model because they're highly skilled now. I wanted to ask, so what, what are you hearing from promotoras on the ground when it comes to the challenges and the fears in the community due to the pandemic. So there's the health issue, but there's also this weaponization by the administration to carry out their anti-immigration policies. What are they seeing? What are they hearing from the community as they're out there in the field? Well, I think there's growing despair because promotoras and community health workers and community leaders are losing their jobs equally as other, other employees are. And what we see is a lot of despair in that there is really very little support that's coming to the community itself. We're talking about, of course, rent, uh, food, transportation. Those kinds of things are exacerbated in our communities, which are the most, either the most rural and the most underserved, or even in urban areas, they're cutting back on busing services. And so there's a lot of uh, unknown uh, until rec- testing had not been really, I think, focused in, in the Latino community in particular until most recently. And so you're starting to find uh, positive tests across California, which means that it's going, to, it's going to uptick because you're testing and you're going to find more, more numbers. And that brings a different kind of a, a fear to the community because we, we've been in a way thinking it didn't affect us, but now we know it, our numbers are going up and there are a few resources to take care of us as we're getting sick or even testing and the resources that come as you test positive and you have to, you have to isolate. It's very difficult for many in our community to isolate because you know we're living so many in a household. We still have to go to work with many of the essential workers it's a very difficult situation for us when um, we're asked to do certain things. Social distancing is not a reality when you're living 12 in a house or even five or six in a house. And you still have to go to work as an essential worker for the, the, for the markets and those kinds of things. So, and of course, our farm workers are still out in the fields providing the food for us that we eat every day. Can you talk a little bit more about 
the farm workers and the essential workers, I know that things are more challenging now because of the coronavirus. But before this pandemic, there was a reason that your organization exists. What were some of the other problems or the more pressing issues that you dealt with before the pandemic? Well, certainly healthcare was is is most has been the most prominent, I think, for the last few years, and behavioral health that comes, I think, is a natural evolution of of being underemployed and not having salaries that are that are appropriate for a living wage. Those things, those things, plus housing, all the social determinants affect our families tremendously, and so the epidemic has just exacerbated poor conditions already. Farm workers and, and essential workers are continue to drive this economy. They continue to work every day, whether they're in restaurants or they're out in the fields and receive very little recognition. Much of the resources and the focus has not been on that community. And so they continue to suffer with not access to healthcare, testing, and the resources like food and housing and rent and those things. Maria, you touched on this already, but I just wanted to see if you could dive a little bit deeper. In in California, as you know, Latinos have consistently had the highest rates of COVID-19. And what would you attribute this to? You did mention some. And what is your organization doing to help reverse that trend? Well, I think you're going to see high rates percentage-wise because we're the largest community in California. So if you just look at our numbers... Of the numbers of Latinos, you're going to see a high percentage. I think that you're going, you're, we're seeing a spike in part because we're just testing in our communities. So if you look at the percentage, whether it's in Los Angeles or it's in the Valley, and now we're testing, we're going to see large numbers and we're going to see a spike. The question for me is going to be, well, how are we going to uh, remediate that? What resources are there for, for us to stay in, in place and also to give us the support services that we need. If I, if I test positive and I'm in my house, who's going to help me with those things, you know, with the food and with, if I have to travel or I have to go to the hospital, I think there's very little consideration right now for the increasing numbers that we're going to have to serve. I'm hoping our, our, our infection rate is not as high and that we don't have that many of us who are going to the hospital, but the navigation of those services is really important. So I had a nephew who was tested positive and he was in the hospital. He's 23 years old and he was in ICU for two weeks. And so my family had to live with not understanding what was happening, not having someone talk to them, not being able to see him. And I think what we became very aware of is that the navigation from the point of taking a test to if you're positive to being in the hospital to getting out, there are very few resources for us in our community. And in other languages, it's almost non-existent, whether it's Spanish or Chinese or in the Valley, Punjabi. I mean, we've got a lot of issues in terms of, of immigrants being infected. It's just not the Latino community. There are many immigrants across California. I've seen some headlines and, and stories about the Latino community and maybe other immigrant communities who are wary of contact tracing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think that fear comes from, you know, the government threatening to take that information and use it somewhere else. We know that for the information that we gather, it's confidential. It is HIPAA. 
we do follow HIPAA rules and we're very careful about the information that we gather. And I think there's always a mistrust in our immigrant communities about where that information is going, especially when the federal government threatens to use it in different ways. And so that makes people pause to, should I give that information? Part of what we've been encouraging for the last few months is that they integrate promotoras and community health workers as part of that contact tracing team because we're trusted in the neighborhood. We're more likely to access more people easier. We haven't seen we haven't seen the move in that direction yet, but we continue to advocate for that. There are some counties that are recruiting what they call community health workers, but I did look at those descriptions and the requirements are a little difficult. One county, for instance, is requiring a high school degree in fluent in, in English. Those two alone are barriers that will preclude some of our promotoras from being engaged in that in that process where if they were to work with community-based organizations to train local promotoras and, and then we could go out in the community and really, I think, get that information more readily. It hasn't moved in that direction yet, but we've been encouraging the state and the Department of Public Health to partner with community. Uh, for part, as being part of the solution. We say that there's an army of promotoras in California ready to be deployed to help. We haven't uh, been, been asked to do that yet, but we continue to offer and to, to be part of that. Following up real quick on something you said, you know, you've been doing this a long time. Do you feel that the mistrust in the community of the government is worse than it's ever been? I don't know if I would say mistrust as much as I would say kind of a a fear and ambivalence. I think that in certain places in California, the government agencies have not been forthcoming in being helpful to our community. And in some places, it's been very difficult. In the Valley, it's, it's probably more difficult than in urban areas, in rural areas. And so there is a mistrust. There is a there is a fear of the government and and what it's going how it's going to help our community but a lot of that is historical reference and what's happened in the past i think what our agencies need to do is again partner with us to say and that would move uh, the information it would move the it would also move the media it would move a lot of things if we were to engage as in a partnership with them, with the guarantee, of course, that none of this information would be used in a, in a negative way and that there were resources for our community. Part of the ethical question for us is if we go out and we do contact tracing and we are able to figure out the path and who's infected, well, the ethical question is where are the resources for them? Can we say that if I go to you by the end, I ask you, and have you been exposed and will you test and you test positive? Well, first of all, is there a place nearby where you can test? And then if you test positive and if you become sick, is there a resource for you? If if that doesn't exist in your community, then you're not likely to do that because you already know it doesn't exist. And so that's part of the equation when you say we want to test and we want to make sure everybody is tested and has risk and is taken care of. But that taken care of piece is questionable in some places. You've mentioned to me before that the Mission District has the largest Mayan population outside of Mexico and Central America. And I was wondering if this population faces unique challenges and what work you're doing specifically with these communities. 
Well, it's interesting you asked me about them. They're a wonderful group. There's Mayans in San Francisco and in Marin County in the Canal District. There's also large groups of Mixtecos in Oxnard. And then in other places, there's different other indigenous groups. There are two wonderful organizations that specifically focus on the indigenous community and we partner with them. And I know the one in San Francisco more closely and the one actually in Oxnard because we do uh, work with them. We do provide training for them. We just finished our core training, which is our Promotora Leadership Program, with about 25 in San Francisco. And they're, they're absolutely wonderful, and they want to help their community. So this training was to help them to build upon what they know already and to take it to the larger community in San Francisco. I think their issues are similar to all Latino issues, except they're compounded because they speak an indigenous language. And so when they go to a service provider, it's not about finding somebody who speaks Spanish. It's about finding somebody who speaks Mixteco. And more than that, who understands the culture and who is sympathetic to the, the way that they think. Many years ago, when I was first starting this, there was a book called, it was a book about the Lao community in Fresno. I don't remember the entire title, but it's something like When I Fall Down, something. And, and it was really talking about the Lao community coming to Fresno and having to adapt to a system that was literally foreign to them and the obstacles that they personally have to face. It's the same thing with Mayans or with other immigrants. They come into a world that's totally unknown to them, a system that that they don't understand, and moreover, didn't have to deal with in their home country. And so it is the adaptation to a new culture, a new language, new food, new resources, and new systems that you're required to do. And I, I think what we should do is honor immigrants. My parents were immigrants also, um, but honor them in coming here and it's like jumping into a whole new world and, and you have to start from, from one, you know, going at a hundred miles an hour. It's just amazing if we put ourselves in their shoes. And I think the Mayan community and other immigrant communities, we should thank them for adapting as much as they have and for, for wanting to find out as much as they can about the U S system. Many of us who are born here don't understand the U S system and so for them to be able and want to learn it, we say that when you mentioned Asiuna Digna Sanai, we talk about working towards a healthy and dignified life. And the healthy life is the big age. It is healthy in having a job, having a home, having food on the table. We all want the same thing. We all want health and opportunity for our families and for our children. And when an immigrant comes here from whatever country, that is what they want. That's what my parents wanted. My parents worked in the fields and my mother cleaned houses and washed dishes. And she would always tell me, I don't want you to, to live. I don't want a life like that for you. I was blessed to go to college. I do well. And I think all parents want that for their children. So whatever country we're from, when we come here, you know, we're, we, we, we are guaranteed. The Constitution guarantees us the opportunity. Unfortunately, our systems are not. And so we've been training our community on institutionalized racism, structural racism, to really understand they landed in a spot and this is what they landed. This is the world they came into. They didn't create it. And so how do you understand it? How do you learn the systems? And how do you, how do you benefit your family based on what exists today? And how do you make it better? 
Maria, because cases are rising again, businesses that opened up are having to close again. Are you particularly worried about the Latino community because of what's going on now? I am, and I'm worried about native-born as well as immigrant. I think that we're not a, we're not monolithic. We are from many countries, and we are first, second, third, fifth generation native-born as well as recent immigrants. And how we perceive the epidemic depends on partly in where we live and what information and resources we have and how we understand it. So if I live in an area where the epidemic really hasn't we haven't tested much for now LA is different because that's they're very active. But in other parts, you know, Tulare just had a spike. Tulare County, for instance, has a spike because they started testing. Well, that's an indicator for the other counties in the valley. We're starting to really get information out there about social distancing and wearing masks. Where before it had not been an issue for our community because they thought, well, it doesn't really affect us. We're not the ones that are being affected infected and the tests are not in our area. I'm worried that we're going to see more positives, therefore more illness and more hospitalization. And I don't know what the capacity is for them to, for the hospitals and the systems to really absorb us because we are so many. I think people forget the how large of a number the Latino community is. And we're underserved already before the epidemic there were a few clinics, few hospitals, few services. We weren't all insured. Now with the epidemic, I'm afraid it's just going to skyrocket. Look at look at Texas and Miami. That's in the Latino community. And they don't have enough resources right now. We are thankful that in California, the governor and his staff, I must give them a lot of credit, have really worked hard to bring resources in should this hit, you know, for the second wave. So I'm hopeful that we'll that will help our communities, but we don't know how big it's going to be. And I am concerned about that. We are making, we are going out and doing a campaign about wearing masks today on Facebook, really focusing that you have to wear a mask and you have to, so, you know, social distance. You can't just go out, you can't party, bars, the whole thing in support of what the prevention that the, the governor's office is, is started. I think that's a good segue. I think we have um, time for one more question, but you talk about the campaign for the masks. I was going to ask you, what are the big priorities or the projects that you're working on right now that you're focused on and how can our viewers and our readers um, get involved? Well, when the epidemic first started, we started to do webinars. And so we've pretty much gone virtual in many of our trainings, our convenings. It's been challenging. It was challenging at first, but now we have a system down where promotoras are really connecting to each other by phone or virtually. We're using some of Facebook as well. And so our, our webinars series initially was on COVID, what it is, you know, and, and the implications of it. And the second series is now on support, kind of the wellness support. We're talking, we just had webinars on, one on suicide, one on racism, which was really in relationship to Black Lives Matter. And we just had one this week on LBGTQ. The next series is going to be also on wellness, but it's going to be talking about things like parenting in this time of COVID, about the male role, the female roles. We've been really focusing on supporting the individuals and the families to get through this. You know that a household isolated without anywhere to go 
is just complicating the dynamics, the family dynamics. And so we're providing a lot of support for that, a lot of mental health issues, social issues. Everything we do is in Spanish. And so we're also carrying it out across the United States. We're partnering with the consuls of Mexico and with other national organizations to take our webinars and our information out to other communities. I think the more we can do to provide information on questions that they have. Now, we can't answer things like I lost my job. We can't get jobs. But we have a large workforce initiative that now I think we're two years into it, where we are advocating and supporting the promotora should be part of that hiring process. And we know that there are many, you know, many, many who are qualified. And so we're working with potential employers to really look and reconstruct the job description to hire more. Workforce is important, is an important part of COVID. If you're not working, then you're not providing for the family and it leads to a lot of other issues. We are continuing our curriculum and our trainings virtually. And I think what we're going to start doing also is supporting social distancing, actually going out in the community and showing how it can happen. We've been, they've donated masks to us, so we're going to be passing those out to different communities and uh, be more active in supporting our community in how to survive, whether it's in rural or urban areas, and linking them to resources. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing, and thank you for sharing it with us today. Well, thank you for having me on this, and I really appreciate the questions and the interest, and I hope if anybody wants any additional information, they can reach me at mariavisionincompromiso.org or the website. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you both very much. Okay, so Maria had so many interesting insights and things to say. Yeah, I, I thought it was something that stood out for me is, is we talk about the Latino community in this monolithic way, mm-hmm. as she pointed out, but then you have the indigenous communities uh, like the Mayans and that added layer of complexity when no one can speak their their native language, you know, so how do they get help when they when they seek it? So that I don't think that's something that we've talked about much. I haven't seen that much in, in mainstream news. Right. The other thing that stood out to me was that she's worried as things go on because, you know, from what it sounds like, community is only starting to realize the impact on them. But then it's things are getting worse again. And so that's worrisome to her. And that's I, I think that should be worrisome to all of us because people in the Latino community are so important to everything that makes this country run. Yeah, her opening statement just it it was so compelling because she said we're not going to see the implications of this in that community and in our larger community for for a long time. So what has this really, you know, if you talk about the domino effect, what it was it what is it going to be? How are they going to fall? We have no idea and that's that's very frightening, but it also compels us to take action. Okay, well, thank you for listening to Race and Coronavirus. You can find us on raceandcoronavirus.com. Mm-hmm.